Hey, it's good to be back. Did anyone notice I was gone? Yeah. No. Summer. Everyone's gone. It's good to have all of you here today. I am glad to be back from holidays. Had some some uh, brain time off and some R&R as well as R&R&R. And R. The third R is for renovation. But, you know, somewhere there was rest and relaxation in there too. But it's good to be back. Very thankful for... All the great teaching Dana has done this summer, uh, really taking these parables of Jesus and uh, really helping us understand what God is up to, as well as Maddie back in July uh, teaching as well. Just keep Maddie in your prayers. What's it, what, what time is it in Alberta? It's 11.30. She's probably right in the middle of her second of four services that she's preaching today at Commons Church in, in Calgary. Yeah, four services, three Sunday morning and one Sunday night. So, you know, if you think of Maddie, pray for her. As she, as she preaches there today on, uh, out, of, out of the book of Acts. So proud of her and excited. Hey, this is going to be a really interactive service, so be prepared to respond. Here's where we're going to start. Who loves a good mystery story? Yeah. What are some of your favorites? They can be books, they can be movies. What are some of your favorite mystery stories? Shout them out. What's that? Agatha Christie. Sherlock Holmes. Of what variation of Sherlock. Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, the actual stories, Maureen? You actually read the stories. Who read? Okay. Awesome. The younger generation is just in love with Benedict. Benedict, yeah. Okay. Uh, other mystery stories? Hardy Boys. Woo! I was raised on Hardy Boys. Thank you, Olin. Okay, then that's true. What else? What was it, Kevin? What? The Sugar Creek Gang? Okay. Nancy Drew, yeah, that's, she got two votes. That's amazing. You know, the thing about a good uh, mystery story, whether it's a movie or whether it's a book, is that somewhere in the middle of the story you're wondering, how are they going to figure this out, right? As the plot gets more and more twisted, as the, as the characters are, are further and further into a corner, you're thinking, how is, this gonna, how is the crime going to be solved how is the treasure going to be found? How is this, all this weird stuff that's happening going to be un, unraveled, right? And the best mystery writers, be it on the screen or in books, they really take you to that place where you're like, it's impossible. They can't do it. They can't. But you know, right? Like you know actually they're going to figure it out. That it doesn't matter how strange it gets. It doesn't matter how obscure the detail or how weird or how many characters and what is going on. It looks like everyone's guilty. You know that somehow, like you know that you know that you know that the brilliant protagonist, be it Sherlock Holmes or, or uh, you know, who, who else? Like Jessica Fletcher. How about Ethan Hunt? Anyone? Mission Impossible? Anyone? Oh, come on. You know that they're going to figure it out. That they're going to somehow solve the crime. Somehow they're going to figure out who done it. Maybe just as the credits roll. And it's so satisfying, isn't it? I mean, even, if, even after the 65th book written by the same person, it gets a bit generic. It is something satisfying about the fact that this mystery is solved. Well, today, Jesus leads us into a, a short kingdom story that reminds us of just that. That no matter how messy, how mysterious how mixed up the story gets, no matter how confusing things look, whether it looks like evil seems to be winning, whether it looks like at times faithfulness doesn't do anything, 
whether it looks like God has forgotten us, whatever, whatever weird and twisted ways that our plots can become, Jesus actually comes in and he, he gives us the final conclusion to the kingdom story. The conclusion where all mysteries will be solved, where all wrongs will be righted, where good will ultimately triumph over evil. But, for those of you who hate it when someone ruins the end of a story, he does it without robbing us of all the mystery involved. We still live in the midst of the twist. We aren't exactly sure how he's going to figure it out, but we, we now can live with the assurance that this messy mystery does have a clear conclusion. We're nearly finished this summer series on kingdom stories. We've been exploring this series of parables. I think there's like eight of them, right? Dan has been the one doing all, yep, eight of them. Parables are just short stories that Jesus told. And, and they're all designed to reveal something of God's kingdom to anyone who is willing to hear it. Now, as we discover, both in the time of Jesus and, hey, even today, not everyone's actually willing to hear it. There are people who kind of drop in, they listen to Jesus tell a few stories, and they think, kind of like some of you when you hear me preach. You're like, I don't know what that was about. But, and then you just, they just moved on, right? With their day, they went on to their other duties. And Jesus gets that. Not everyone's ready. And he's actually quite willing to wait for them to be ready. But others, we discover, they're caught by these kingdom stories. There's something, that, that, you know, they're happening by. They're on the way to market. They're on the way home. And they, there's a cluster of people. And they come over and they, they begin to hear Jesus telling these stories. And they're caught by them. There's something about what he's saying that intrigues them. And they, they find that half their day has slipped away because they're standing there listening to this guy. And, and in fact, they're so intrigued, they come back the next day and they, 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 they begin to get a little closer to him. And they, they start listening in. And, and then some brave soul, they, they start to answer or ask a, a question of him. They, they start to get closer to Jesus and they ask him to tell them more. And all those folks, we see that throughout the stories of Jesus, these people who are willing to lean in a bit, willing to, to stay after the show, they begin to get an inside glimpse of what God was doing, what God was doing in Jesus, what God was doing in this kingdom that has now arrived in Jesus somehow, and this teaching he was doing, and, and the healing he was doing, and this big proclamation. They begin to get a picture of what God is doing through Jesus. And I hope that somehow lots of us are in that place today where we maybe have found ourselves on the edge of a crowd maybe you've been close to jesus for a long time but where you're still interested in knowing more and wanting to lean in and hear what jesus has to say one of the great things about all these kingdom stories maybe you're just dropping in today because you're visiting we want to welcome you here uh maybe you're, you're a guest you've been coming back for a little while and you're from the valley or maybe you've been in most of the summer series. But these kingdom stories that Jesus told, what's great about them is that he uses real-life stuff that we can get our hands on to make his point. He talks about seeds and weeds. What are some of the other things he talks about? Treasure. Leaven. Pearls, yes. Yeah, he talks about these kinds of things. And today, we even fish. Everyday realities that we can get our hands on. And he uses these common things in life to pull back a curtain, to, to reveal God's presence among us and where he's taking this story. Today's story is the parable of the net, where we move from what you know, most of the stories Jesus has been using to be kind of rooted in, in a, a agriculture, you know, growing things a lot. Now we move to the marine, where instead of farmers, we have fishers. Listen to the story. And as you hear it, 
I want you to kind of tune in. Like, what grabs your attention when you hear this story? What kind of questions surface for you that you think that would be important to understand? Or at least that guy over there should understand it. Okay, so what is that? After I read it, I'll ask you to shout some of them out. So here's the story. Once again, because this is in continuation of a, a lot of stories he's been telling. Once again, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, there's a punchy story, isn't it? Did you get that kind of a short one too? And you know, it's over so quick. I know you want to hear it again, don't you? You want to hear it again because you want to really be able to narrow down what is that question? What is that that needs to be clarified for me? What is it that this makes me think of? Okay, so I'm going to read it again and be ready. What's the question? Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. I want to hear some of your questions. Now, for those who are listening on the podcast, I'm going to repeat them. I'll make them brief. I'm going to repeat them back so that those who are listening in, and we have lots who are, especially over the summer months, as people are gone and they want to be part of the series. Um, and so if you've got a clarification question, I brought a pen. You do realize I'm taking a risk up here today, right? Because I have no idea where these questions are going to go. So then how am I going to finish my sermon properly if you throw me some real humdingers, right? Well, that's because I love you and trust you. No. We're going to see. Oh, do I mean that? Let me rephrase that. I do love and trust you. I do love and trust you. But I also realize we don't know where this is going to go. And I I was telling Dana beforehand, you know, I'm going to try to model interaction here. We'll see. What kind of questions comes out for you people who I love and trust? Amanda. Okay, so who's he telling it to? Yeah. Right. Thank you, Amanda. You've narrowed in on something really important. In the early part of the parable, and I'm not going to do this for every question, but I just want to comment that to explain Amanda's question, Jesus often separates the explanation from the parable, right? And it talks quite a number of times in this chapter that he only told the crowd parables. And then he explained everything to the disciples when they were alone, right? And you're asking why these things together. So we'll leave it for that. Uh, Leave it there. But thank you. That's a great observation, Amanda. Um, 
other questions that come up, clarification questions or interpretive questions, anything. Another harvest. Is that a question or just a simple observation? Good observation. Dan? When is the end? Oh, we'll answer that one. No problem. (laughs) Thank you, Dan. Other questions? Um, Victoria? Net fishing. Middle, shore. Thanks. How do the fishermen tell good fish from bad fish? Okay. Good fish, bad fish. One fish, two fish, right? Is that? You don't know how tempted I was to use illustrations from Dr. Seuss, one fish, two fish, blue fish, red fish. Yes? Okay, so same kind of question you're asking is then, then it's how do the angels know? Yeah, because that's the, that's the comparison being made. Yeah. How would I apply this to pre-Jesus time? Thank you. Yeah, good question. Um, How do I know if I'm a good fish or a bad fish? Yeah, Uh, Terry Lynn? Okay, so the question is, who's, who's doing the judging? Who's doing the judging? Good. Yeah, who's doing the judging? Because it says the angels separate. Okay. Sherry. Great. Is the furnace metaphorical? You guys ready to move? We'll be here till 2 o'clock now. I'll take a couple more, Eric. Okay. Fish missed by net. Okay. How good are the good fish? Like sushi quality or cedar plank? What are we talking here? Oh, sorry, yeah, Jan. How bad is wicked? How wicked is wicked? Bren, and that's it. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop at question 13. Okay, kind of the reverse in some ways of, of Jan's question. Great. Okay. So, there we go. How do I make sense of that? Let's talk. So, in this story, I want to just point out some of the questions we have aren't specifically told. Like, there'd be really no way of knowing based on 
this parable, correct? Because it's really short. It's really punchy. It simply states what? It simply states that in the end, there'll be separation and judgment. Just just to name it, right? It doesn't get... There's a tremendous amount of detail around, like, even some of the questions we just asked at the end, like, what is wicked, what is righteous? We'd have to draw from the much larger story, and that's a good thing, to try to get down to what is that? Like, what is going on? And and how does this all work? But there's some things in this passage that we can... We want to start with some of the basics, and then we'll try to see... I don't know that we'll be able to make sense of all these questions today, and if there was a question that you either asked or uh, didn't ask and is really burning you up to, 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 to get answered, then, of course, we can, we can talk more. In this story, Jesus tells a simple parable of fish being caught. Now, this is a parable that's very similar to another parable he's already told right here in Matthew 13. Does anyone remember what it is? The wheat and the tares, the wheat in the weeds. Now, in that parable, not having to be a parable that Maddie was, was, was preaching on back in July, in that parable, there's more in the interlude, you could say, going on, where um, what happens is the guy uh, seeds uh, wheat in his field, and then at night, an enemy comes, and, and, and there's weeds that are, that are sown secretly. And they're growing up, and they realize, too late, oh my goodness, there's weeds in the wheat. And instead of ripping it up and burning it up, The the master says, wait, just wait, let it grow together, because if you start ripping out weeds, you're going to hurt the wheat. And there's this caution about about, uh, presuming, there's this caution about, you know, deciding in advance who's in and who's out, and all, all the caution that's there, but it ends in the very same way. In fact, the language is, is, is very similar. It ends with, there'll be a separation and the, the, the wicked will be, and it's actually the exact same language, the same phrase is used, the, the, the wicked will be um, thrown into a blazing furnace, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This weeping and gnashing of teeth business, I know, has a long history in some people's minds of pain and anguish. But that's actually not typically what it means in the Bible. So typically, weeping and gnashing of teeth, let me say this first of all, it's only used seven times in the New Testament. Six of those times are in Matthew, twice of them right here in Matthew 13, okay? The only other time it's used outside of Matthew is in Luke, and it's in a parallel passage. They almost always, I think exclusively actually, they have to do with people who are excluded. Usually they thought they were included. Usually they thought they were in. Often they have done something abusive. So the guy who's, you know, the wicked servant who's like beating the other servants, not thinking the master's going to come back and the master comes back. Or, or, or the guy buried the t- treasure in the ground. You get the same idea, that they're, that they're, um, they're excluded. And this phrase is used not always in the, in the larger uses of it, it. It often has darkness, not blazing furnace. And then it says weeping gnashing teeth. If you look into the Old Testament background of this phrase, as well as how it's used in, in the book of Acts, it's always used when an enemy or someone who hates you um, like essentially tries to bite you. Like they're gnashing their teeth at you, as in they're trying to get you with their teeth. And they're howling with rage. Okay? And so depicted in the Psalms and Lamentations, other places, it's, it's enemies who are gnashing their teeth at, at the righteous. That, that's the image there. 
And, and so while there has at times been sort of a, as though they're in anguish, they're so sorry they've been excluded, that actually has no biblical basis. In the Bible, when they're weeping and gnashing, they're angry. They're wanting to do violence to the righteous. They're, they're outraged and indignant that they have somehow been judged. So just, just to put that in its, in its context. The question about the blazing furnace, I do think it's metaphorical, partly because there's many different images used in, of the scripture to indicate judgment or destruction. A furnace is one of them. But there's lots of other images. And they seem to indicate some kind of uh, end, some kind of destruction, you'd say. You wouldn't normally throw actual fish into a blazing furnace, you understand. But, but this, I, this idea, because the metaphor shifts away from fish to just a general statement, that there'll be destruction, that wicked will be destroyed. And, and there's this exclusion that they're angry, angry about. But it very clearly depicts an end. The end of the age um, is kind of a code word, you could say. Not a code word, but it, it indicated expectation in the Jewish people's minds that would come a time when God would make things right. Particularly the two things that they held up, and you see it all through the Jewish prophecies, all the way through the Old Testament into the New, there's this expectation that in the end, the righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will be destroyed. And you see this all through the Bible. It's promised, it's promised again, it's shown again and again and again. This is part of the expectation that when God shows up, when his kingdom comes, the righteous who have been faithful and yet have often been oppressed and beaten down and destroyed, God will, will judge in their favor. He'll say, they have been faithful. Enter my reward. You know, that kind of stuff. And, but he will also say to the wicked, you are being punished. You are being excluded. The righteous will be vindicated, being shown to have been faithful, and the wicked will be destroyed. And you'll see this all over if you read the Psalms or the Proverbs, that in the end, judgment will fall. Did you have a question? Your hand was up. Yeah, well, the indi- so the question is, who's doing the gnashing? It seems to be an image of, 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 of outrage and an indignation on the part of those being excluded. Now, people can go down that track and try to figure, like, what's going on? Are they alive? Are they, you know, all that kind of question. It gets kind of messy, and here, here's why. Uh, uh, okay, this is a little bit, woo, for younger children. But um, in one of the parables, the guy's dismembered first and then thrown into the place where there's weeping gnashing teeth. So I say that because you don't want to push these metaphors too far and think, well, like, how is this working? The point is, the point is very clear that in the end, there will be judgment. Judgment on the wicked, and there will be vindication for the righteous. Now, that's very significant. It's very significant for a persecuted people. It's very significant for a people who have been striving to be faithful under an oppressive rulership like the Roman Empire. It's very significant when people are wondering, has God forgotten us? Like, is there any point continuing to be faithful? 
Or is God, he's not going to make good in his promises after all. Like, what is he waiting for? Doesn't he see what's happening? Hasn't he noticed for the last, you know, hundreds of years that we're getting crushed down here? Some of you might feel like that in your own life. You might feel like there's times where you're thinking, God clearly doesn't, he's clearly checked out. He clearly doesn't understand what's happening in my life anymore. He has forgotten me. And one of the things that these kinds of, of parables, but larger teaching, they, they, they serve to reassure us that God has not forgotten us. That there is coming a time when judgment will be rendered. Judgment on the wicked and judgment on the righteous. Judgment itself is not a negative term. You can be judged good and judged bad, right? But judgment will, will come. Amanda, you pointed out a question around like who's, who's receiving this. It's very interesting. Right in the middle of Matthew 13, if you read the narrative of how Matthew tells the story, it does seem to shift in there. So that the last number of parables do seem to be just to the disciples. Now, we can be fairly, um, I think, safe to assume, based on what Mark and Matthew and the gospel writers tell us, that Jesus also told these same parables to the crowds. But it does seem to be very strong that he only would tell the parables to the crowds and then see who came forward to ask questions, as it were, who got in deeper. And then they would get an explanation. And so in this parable, see, the wheat and the weeds, there's this big separation. He gives the parable and then nothing. And then later the disciples come to him and say, "Uh, tell us what that means. And he tells them. And they're very similar parables. The wheat and the weeds have a little bit more detail, but they're similar, in, certainly in their conclusion. In this one, it's like it's collapsed. And all the discussion about leave them and wait and all, that's all gone. It's just a very simple, in the end, there will be judgment. In the end, the wicked will be destroyed. In the end, the faithful will be vindicated. And he seems to be telling this just to the disciples the end of the age is a tricky business as to when it is. Uh, thank you, Dan. I, um, what's interesting, when Jesus comes on the scene and announces that the kingdom is here, part of the confusion there is there's a bunch of expectations around what that means. Like, what does it mean that God is on the scene now? Oh, okay, well, we know what that means. This, this means enemies will be judged. Righteous will be vindicated. And what was really hard about that was that their leader then died on a Roman cross. And it seemed to run completely smack against their expectations because their expectation was, well, it's time now for the righteous to finally rise up and the wicked to be destroyed. How is it now that the wicked have then just destroyed our Messiah? Jesus announced the kingdom is here. And yet there's this new idea perhaps that the kingdom that is here is not fully present. It's not fully here. And this has been a teaching done through Christian uh, Christian. Uh, centuries, is the idea that the kingdom is present, but, but it's not yet fully present. It's not all here yet. Jesus is really here. The Spirit is really present. People are really being healed. New creation really is happening. But it's happening still like the mustard seed, like the yeast. It's happening still in a process of transformation. It's growing over time. It's bringing change to, it's changing soil from being infertile and rocky to being more receptive and open. And, and there's this time process in there as the kingdom of God is present and yet has not yet fully come. And we'll talk about what that, what that means. 
But so we would say, yes, the kingdom of God is present, has come in Jesus. He is the king. And yet, the righteous still continue to be destroyed and often. Wicked still seem to triumph. Yet Jesus steps in and says, yes, but at the end, at the resurrection, when it really is wrapped up, and I don't mean space and time is wrapped up, but when this part of the story is over and we move on to what's next, there will be a judgment. There will be separation. Net fishing, I I have no idea if it was done middle or by the shore. But they filled their nets with fish. And we see the disciples uh, did it, right? There's a story where they were, they were fishing and their net was so full and they drug it to the shore. So I don't know, just based on that, I think maybe shore, but maybe not far from shore. Nonetheless, they caught all kinds of fish. The story, we don't want to push it too far. It probably doesn't get into whether fish were missed. But what it tells us is that it's gathering, it's the all kinds of fish that matter. Just like the wheat and the weeds. The sense of like everyone's present. Every kind of person or every kind of fish. And somehow the angels do know what is good or bad. They, they're able to render uh, a decision or do the work of the Father in separating out what is good and what is not. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay. We'll get to some of the other questions, I think, as we, as we move forward. But before we go on, I want to make a connection to something just basic. Some of us are new to faith, new to the Christian story. And I want to highlight something important because this seems, well, I don't know, scary or harsh or weird. Or, you know, and I just want to acknowledge that for those of us who are maybe newer to the Bible, newer to the story, you're thinking, wow, blazing furnaces with weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's, like, it's freaking me out. I want to highlight something important. It's a kind of basic Christian. It's from the Apostles' Creed. Now, we have been uh, confessing the Apostles' Creed. Well, the Christians have been confessing it for almost 2,000 years. But we, we've, we've been doing it at the end of the month on our communion Sundays. I want to highlight just a portion of it, the portion that is about Jesus. Because the Apostles' Creed is divided about believing in God the Father Almighty, believe in Jesus, believe in the Holy Spirit, and then some other things are tagged on at the end. Uh, so this first part here, or the second part, sorry, I believe in Jesus Christ. And then it details who exactly we're talking about. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So we know who we're talking about. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then this last line, and will come to judge the living and the dead. That line right there is what this parable is talking about. It's a very simple statement of confession that Christians have believed from day one that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead, basically everyone who's alive and everyone who's died. Now, just to tag on, at the very end of the Apostles' Creed, there's also two other statements that relate to this. One is that I believe in the resurrection of the body. Can you bring up? Yeah, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and also I believe in the life everlasting. These are three specific statements that have to do with this end of the age that Christians have confessed to believe and share belief. This is across every imaginable Christian denomination and tradition. This belief that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, that we will be raised, given a new body to live the life 
everlasting. And I highlight that because I just want to, want to kind of cut through all the metaphor and even the parable and just say, what we're talking about here today is very basic Christian belief. That from where we sit in our mysterious life, from where we sit in history, we're looking back at what Jesus has done and who he is, who he is was, what he did for us. But we're now living kind of in between those last two lines, in between seated at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. That's where we sit. We confess this is faith, believing that there will come a time when judgment will fall. This hope we have in judgment is a good thing. It's a great thing. Um, yeah, there's two key truths about God that we not just pull out of this, but we see it demonstrated in this. And the first one is, is that God is just. God is just. Now that is super significant. Sometimes we don't think about that. We don't think about God's justice being good news. Can you tell me why it's good news? Why is it good news that God is just? Shout it out. You can trust him. What else? We live in a very unjust world. If we were dependent upon the justice of justice systems or of history or to, to, to really um, you know, bring all the evildoers to, to, to justice, we would be, well, we'd be in despair, wouldn't we? Because it doesn't happen that way. We live in an unjust world. What else? It gives us hope. How? That's right. He, he knows exactly what's happening, and he's going to bring it to the right conclusion. You know, all over in, in the scriptures, we're told to, to, to not take justice into our own hands. And one of the famous passages is where, where God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Don't, don't you go trying to mete out justice according to your wisdom or your understanding. Now, we see that in the wheat and the weeds. We even see it here, that there's a reason why God says don't take it into your own hands. But we also can trust him that he will, in the end, do justice. In the end, he will separate. He will perfectly judge what is right and what is wrong. And we can trust him. He's holy. He's loving. He's merciful. He's kind. But he is just. And so we can root our hope in his justice. And times, whether we're looking on you know, the global scale or the world stage, or whether even looking in our own lives, where there's been injustices done, where we've struggled with things that have been done wrong to us, or betrayals that have occurred, or, or things that have just gone wrong, and we think, will this ever be sorted out? That we can remind ourselves that God is not a God who forgets. He's a God who is just. He's a God who knows. He's a God with all wisdom and understanding. And in the end, he will bring justice to bear on every situation, every hidden thing that has gone wrong, everything blown up on the world stage. God is just. We can trust him. But the second thing that comes out in this parable and other parables is that God is patient. And this is where it gets hard. You know, we like it when God is patient with us. Right? Some of you are here today because God was patient with you, like really, really patient with you. And you know that God's patience is a sign of grace and kindness to you. I mean, God was patient with Stanley. He was 89 years old when he came to know the good news of Jesus. 
That's patience. That's the patience of God. He's patient. He waits. In a little letter that Peter wrote, 2 Peter, um, he says this, Don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the, the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So time for God is like that. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Even in God's justice, he is terribly patient. He waits. He delays. And as we see all of these stories, um, you know, whether, it, uh, whether it's the yeast or the, or the mustard seed or the soils, we, we see that there's this process of transformation that happens. We don't always know how it happens. We don't, we don't always know, like, what, what were the conditions that came about to create this movement that brought this change in people's lives. But, but we see it. We see soil that was rocky and resisted seed forever all of a sudden become fruitful and fertile. We see seeds that were planted in someone's life seemingly decades ago all of a sudden spring to new life. You know, we think we've been kneading this dough forever and suddenly the yeast begins to work. The promise of Jesus is that his kingdom is active and present. And his patience patience to allow frankly far longer than we would allow because we are not patient we are you know quick people who want it solved now we sit in the middle of god's patience and what we have to remember is yes god is just but also he's patient and that patience is a sign of his love and his kindness not just to us but also to those that we would at this point deem as the wicked I mean, it's in the same gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Do good to those who want to harm you. You know, it's in the same gospel that Jesus was was teaching his people how to live differently, how to not judge from externals, but to, to love those who are wanting to harm you. Somehow in the middle of that, providing a witness that not only is to God's justice, but also to his patience, his kindness, and his love. God is patient, and he, he waits, and he's still even waiting today. Well, what does that do for us? I do realize we have to wrap up. And I will try to answer some of these questions as we come to the end. What does this vision do for us today? This vision of the end? This vision of God's justice? I think at least four things. One, it protects us from presumption. Now, this has been a warning, certainly in the wheat and the weeds one, there's a, there's a warning against presumption. But when we see the larger teaching of Jesus, particularly when there's um, acts of separation, not just where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and all that, but where Jesus tells a story where people are separated, you know, sheep and goats or whatever. What we often see, often, is that those who thought they were in are out, and those who thought they were out are in. And those who thought they were in and out are mad about it, hence the weeping, gnashing bit. But there's often a surprise element where those who thought they were in like dinner found themselves cold and on the outside. And there's this warning about don't presume. The first will be last. The last will be first. And it warns us against a presumption, particularly a presumption about others, 
No, oh, I know that. That guy, he's not interested in Jesus or that woman. She'll never see the light of day. Whatever. Presumptions that we carry about others. And when we, ta- we, when, we, when we take those presumptions, it can prevent us from being the patient, kind witnesses that Jesus has called us to be. It prevents us from praying for people. So it protects us from presumption also about ourselves. It does remind us that we need to come to Jesus. One of the things I don't want you to walk away from is, is some idea that we can never know. No, no. One of the things that's really clear in the whole teaching of Scripture is that Jesus is doing the judging, is the Jesus who took sin upon himself and died on the cross. So that anyone who comes to him, anyone messed up, wicked, evil, comes to him in repentance, throws themselves at the mercy of Jesus, they are received with delight as a loved child of God. And so it's not the, the kind of thing where, where you, you have to be insecure but it does remind us that we don't just rest on our own laurels and say, well, I've got it made. I'm, I've, I've got this. I know this. No, no. We come to Jesus for his mercy. We come and follow and long to be with and lay our lives down before him. So it protects us against presumption. Second, it shelters us from despair. I think knowing that God is just and knowing that God is patient can shelter us from the despair that happens. When we think life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter whether I'm faithful or I mess around. It doesn't matter whether I'm honest or I cheat. It doesn't really matter because life is unjust and there's really nobody in the end to make a difference anyway. It guards us from despair when we think even serving doesn't matter. And loving these children doesn't matter. And, 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 and leaning in and, and, and letting God do a work in our lives. We can think that doesn't matter, but it does. It protects us from that kind of, of despair. We can seek First, the kingdom of God, knowing that he who is patient and he who is just will in the end solve it all. Number three, it urges us to embrace the kingdom now. All that Jesus has been telling us in these parables about how God's kingdom is at work, how it's bringing transformation, how it's growing in surprising ways, it reminds us that we need to embrace what God is doing in this patient period. Embrace what he's doing as he is waiting, delaying even judgment, so that more and more men and women and children would come to know his grace and his favor. We can embrace that, the little seeds that must be planted, the little, the little bits of dough that need leaven. We can embrace the places that God has put us in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families, and continue to live out this patient kindness of God in showing people who Jesus is. And then fourth, as we've already heard, it reminds us to trust God with the kingdom outcome. We're going to follow Jesus in his kingdom business, but we're going to trust God with the outcome. All these parables teach us that we're in the middle of the planting. We're in the middle of the transformation of the the, the yeast. We're in the middle of this story. We don't know exactly how Jesus is going to work everything out, but it tells us that he will. We're called to follow him in his kingdom, making known his love and his grace, and trusting him with the outcome. God is patient. God is just. And because we know that, we can follow Jesus with confidence, with commitment, and I believe with kindness. And that is what makes the difference. As I close here today, I want to name one thing. Some of you have wondered, well, what about the wicked? What about the righteous? The truth is, 
this story tells us that the kingdom of God is catching them all. Which means that everyone, particularly everyone here today, is having an opportunity to reflect on who you are and who Jesus is. An opportunity to respond to the kindness and the grace of God. And that story, which depicts the end separation, is something that is still in the future. Present today is the call to anyone. However, the struggle has been, whatever the sin has been, wherever you feel like you've messed up or forgotten or fallen down, to simply turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. That when you died on that cross, you were judged in my place. Judgment has been rendered already in you. And you have offered life to me freely. And so I can come to you, whoever I am, wherever I've been, and simply receive your grace for me. Knowing that this story is true, but in the end when judgment's rendered, Jesus will look at you and say, oh, you're one of mine. I already died for you. You're one of mine. Come on in. That's the grace and that's the favor of Jesus. Now, does this mean the mystery has been solved for us? I don't think even a little bit. We still live in a mixed up, messed up, mysterious world, right? We still wonder at times whether what we're doing makes a difference. But it does tell us it will be worked out. It does tell us that Jesus is working in even our story and that he's got the end in mind. We follow Jesus in that. We follow Jesus in the middle of our story, believing that God is working out something that is on a much larger scale than our own lives, than our own histories, than even the generations that follow us. He's got a big story he's working out, but he has promised, he has promised that in the end, all wrongs will be righted. All evils will be destroyed. And there will be life everlasting. I want to ask that we close today by saying together the Apostles' Creed. As a, as a closing affirmation, now this may be new to you and it may even be that you don't yet, you're not even yet sure you believe it all. I understand that. And so what I want to invite you to do, all of us to stand, and we're going to read it together, it'll be on the screen. If you yourself aren't sure you believe it yet, just read the stuff you do believe. Maybe there's a couple lines in there. But use this as an opportunity to say, what do I think about that? But for everyone who does believe it, let's conclude today with this affirmation and confession of our faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one who holds all of our stories, one who is just and patient and so, so loving. Let's read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Lord, we are thankful for your love for us. That you don't give a parable like this as a way of 
of um, putting us down, but of, of giving us hope that we live a life before you. You know. You understand. You are merciful. You are just. You are patient. You are kind. We give you praise and glory for that. And for each one of us today, wherever we're at in our lives, may we lean into you, Jesus, to discover more of the life you have for us. Would you send us now? Send us in your courage. Send us with confidence and trust. In your name we pray. Amen.